Welcome to the Outpouring Orlando Sermon Podcast. The Outpouring is a vibrant, Christ-centered church in sunny Orlando, Florida. Thanks so much for tuning in, and we hope you enjoy today's message by Pastor John Daniels. pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity, God, to study and dive into your word, God. We pray this morning, God, that today's message would be Christ-central, God. We pray that the gospel will be at the center of the message, God. We pray that as Jesus is lifted up, God, we will be compelled to love him, to believe in him, to trust in him with our whole hearts. And so we're asking, God, today that the Holy Spirit would open our minds to see, to hear, to learn, to understand that he will convict us, but also encourage us, God, to go forward, God, to do what you called us to do and be who it is that you called us to be, God. And so, Father, I'm praying today that we can focus, that we can pay attention, God, that we can soak up everything that is said in the word today, God. And so, Father, we give you honor and glory. and We thank you, God, that you speak to us through your word. In Jesus' name we pray. And the people of God said, Amen. You may be seated. My sermon title this morning is Remembering and Continuing in Christ. Remembering and Continuing in Christ. I want to tell you the story of Dr. Michael DeBakey. Dr. Michael DeBakey was a Lebanese-American heart surgeon and inventor. Dr. DeBakey is considered by some to be one of the greatest surgeons ever. In 2008, President Bush awarded Dr. DeBakey the Congressional Gold Medal for his legacy in heart surgery. He is also credited as being the first doctor to link smoking and lung cancer. And so he is a, 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 notable, a notable doctor. He was the first surgeon to do a successful coronary bypass on a human patient. But one of his greatest inventions was that he has saved that is that, that has allowed him to save tens of thousands of lives was when he created something called a Dacron graft to repair aneurysms of the aorta in the chest and the abdomen, which has saved thousands of lives, especially of those who have suffered from strokes. And the interesting thing about this particular invention is that this invention came while he was at home as he was sitting at his wife's sewing machine. Now, one would wonder and ask if he is a medical doctor, not to say that he wouldn't be able to sew, but why is he sewing? Well, the reason that he was at his wife's sewing machine and he knew how to sew was because this was one of the things that his mother taught him as a young man. And so when he finds this Dacron graph, he sits down at the sewing machine to actually create 
uh, the instrument that would be used to save so many lives. But the thing is, he credits his mother with providing him with this skill set, an invaluable tool that would help him to save many lives. Many patients that came to him were either at the brink of death or their health was deteriorating. And through the skill set he learned from his mother, he was able to incorporate it into his medical practice and use it to give life to give life to thousands who were at the brink of death. And I think that's a beautiful thing because some lessons that a mother gives a child will provide and, and turn out to be invaluable lessons in their lives. And, and we will see this in today's story because today's story is no different. The Apostle Paul is writing to his son in the faith, a young man by the name of Timothy. Timothy was Paul's co-laborer in the gospel. And so in today's passage, the Apostle Paul is giving young Timothy the reality and the possibilities of difficult times that will come as he goes forth in his ministry. Paul realizes that he himself is at the tail end of his life and ministry, and he could be killed at any moment, but he wants his young son in the faith not to fret in the face of adversity that comes along with being who God called him to be and with the task that God has given him. And part of Paul's advice to Timothy is for Timothy to recall Paul's life and Paul's teaching. And the first thing that Paul wants Timothy to do is he wants him to remember the past. I think it is interesting that Paul admonishes Timothy not just to remember what he taught him, but he wants Timothy to remember what he lived out in front of him. And so he says, you've followed me. You, you followed my life. It suggests that Timothy had this deep, intimate relationship with Paul, that he followed Paul. He took mental notes of everything that the apostle Paul taught him and trained him to do. He was watching not just what Paul taught him about the gospel, but he was watching how Paul lived out the gospel. And so Paul is essentially saying to Timothy, remember how I followed Jesus Christ in the face of adversity? I taught you to follow me as I Christ. And the first point today that I want to make to us, uh, for those of us who would deem ourselves as leaders or spiritual leaders, spiritual leadership is following Jesus and inviting others in on the journey. And so he says to young Timothy, you, you followed my teaching, but you didn't just follow my teaching. You saw my conduct. You saw my purpose. You saw my faith. You saw my patience. You saw my love. You saw my endurance. You saw me put up with persecutions and suffering. He said, you saw my conduct. In essence, he's saying my life confirmed what I was teaching to you. I wasn't just talking about the gospel, but I was living it out in front of you. You saw me fulfill my purpose. You watched me follow the assignment that God gave me to take the gospel to the Gentiles. And although many times I had to leave towns, I had to leave cities because my life was in danger, I stuck with the mission that God gave me and you saw me do that. Not only did you see me follow my, my, follow my conduct and you see me follow, follow my purpose, but you also saw me exhibit Christian virtues such as faith, patience, and love. You saw me exhibit those virtues when I should have been retaliating against people that did things to me. And so he says, recall how you saw me get persecuted, you saw me get beaten, you saw me physically assaulted, and I still stuck to the script. Recall how you never saw me deviate from the mission that God gave me. I want to point, point something out to you guys this morning. Paul went through a lot, and I don't think we can ever um, um, 
under, undermine the things that he went through to do what God called him to do. He went through some real suffering. And so I want to read something to you, um, and I want you to think about whenever you want to complain about what you're going through in life as a Christian, I want you to remember this passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 24 through 29. Look what it says. Five times I was given 39 lashes by the Jews. Three times I was shipped, I was, I was whipped by the Romans, and once I was stoned. I have been in three shipwrecks, and once I spent 24 hours in the water. And he ain't talking about a cruise ship. In many travels, I have been in danger from floods and from robbers, in danger from my own people and from Gentiles. There have been dangers in the cities, dangers in the wilds, dangers on the high seas, and dangers from false friends. Paul got fake friends, y'all. That's crazy. Paul's got fake friends. There has been work and toil. Often I have gone without sleep. I've been hungry and thirsty. I've often been without enough food, shelter, or clothing, and not to mention other things. Every day I am under the pressure of my concern for all the churches. When someone is weak, then I feel week too. When someone is led to sin, I am filled with distress. And so Paul is pointing out to Timothy and us that the journey to follow Jesus Christ is not an easy journey, but it's worth, keep, it's worth it to keep going. And he, he, he references, uh, or, or, or there's this time when he says, you follow me in Iconia and Lystra. There was a time, if you read Acts chapter 14, where Paul literally gets stoned and beaten. He gets knocked unconscious. They drag the apostle Paul out of the city. They think the apostle Paul is dead. They literally think he is dead because he's unconscious, and they surround him, all the people that were with him. And finally, he opens his eye, and they realize that he was still alive. And so Paul has followed Jesus even to the brink of death. But here's what I love about what the Apostle Paul says in verse 11. He says, no matter what I went through, no matter how hard it was, no matter how many times I felt forsaken, it was worth me keep for, for me to keep going. Here's why in verse 11 he says, and yet everything I went through, the Lord rescued me from it all. That's beautiful. This should be encouraging news for everyone that is here today that whatever we may be faced with, when we go in the name of the Lord, he is strong enough to deliver us from every single situation. When we stand up for what we believe in an environment hostile to Christianity, God promises to de deliver us. Being unwilling to compromise your Christian beliefs at the risk of losing your job or influence, God can deliver you. When you make a decision to put your faith before your vocation and your material well-being, God can rescue you. When you are criticized for not capitulating to the mindset of the culture that says anything goes, but you rather stand for truth and righteousness and face ridicule, God says, I will deliver you from it all. And so I don't know what you are going through this morning, but if you're going through it in the name of Jesus Christ, he has promised that he will always be there with you, that he will never leave you, never forsake you. I don't care if you're going through crap at your job. He says, I'll never leave you or forsake you as long as you stand for me and you stand for my truth. You are not by yourself even when it feels like it. And so God will rescue us from anything that we find ourselves into uh, uh, when we go in his name, even even if we feel like we're faced with death, and we don't deal with that here in America, but increasingly we're seeing that people are going into religious spaces and murdering people. So let's not be naive and think that it can't happen to us. But God says, I will rescue you from anything. And if, you, if they kill you, I still rescue you and take you to heaven. God's bad. <laughs> and so Paul says, God will deliver us from them all. And here's the thing. He's encouraging Timothy 
not to put trust in his own might or his own willpower to overcome what he's going through. But what he's saying to Timothy is God is God's grace is strong enough to keep you where you are. He's pointing Timothy not to Timothy's internal self, but he's pointing Timothy to the source of power, which is Jesus. He's saying if you need power, if you need strength, if you feel like you're weak, if you're facing persecution, don't worry. Don't look to me. Don't look to your family. Don't look to your friends. Look to Jesus, and he is where your help will come from. And so it is interesting that we as Christians have to go through opposition. But the thing is, Paul doesn't think we should be surprised when we face opposition. Actually, he says that Christians should expect it. You should be surprised when you're not going through something. You ever have a season where things are going right, and you be just thinking, like, this going to end at some point. <laughs> this is, I'm having a little bit too much money right now. I don't, what's going to break next? Is it the tire? Is it the transmission? Is the AC going to break at the house? What's, is, are they going to spike my car insurance? What's going, what am I going to have to buy? What, what's going to break? Because things are going too well for me right now, and I'm not used to this. And so all I would say is when you're in those type of seasons when everything is going good, enjoy it and thank God for it. And here's what he says in verse 12. In fact, if you would sit in some churches in America today, this would probably not ring true. Maybe this scripture wouldn't even be read. But verse 12 says something interesting. It says, in fact, all who want to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. Let me read that again for the people in the back that can't hear me. He says, in fact, all who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. He says all, not some. He says all. And so it is naive for us to think that desiring to live a godly life in an ungodly and fallen world will be easy. To live for Christ at any point will expose you to persecution. Now, let me clarify something. Persecution ain't you doing something crazy. You get caught doing it. You go to jail and talk about they persecute me. That's not persecuting. You, you go rob a bank, you get caught, you go to prison, they persecute me. No, you stole something. You're dealing with the consequences. But real persecution is being reviled and being, having false things said about you because you stand for Christ and you stand for the truth. I want to give you this point. Godliness brings persecution. Godliness brings persecution. I want to read to, to you something from a theologian by the name of William Barclay who says this. Some form of opposition will come if we attempt to witness to a world that hates to be told truth and loves darkness. Let me say that again. Some form of opposition will come if we attempt to witness to a world that hates to be told the truth and loves darkness. And though we may go through stuff, though we may struggle in this life, and sometimes for us, it feels like we've been struggling for 95% of our lives. It seems like we've been in a battle since we've been born. It seems that things are always going wrong. Sometimes you wish, like, why did I have to be born in this family? God, couldn't I get a, a rich family or something, Jesus? Can some rich people adopt me? I I've been going through it for so long. I've been broke for a long time. I've been struggling for a long time. I've been dealing with medical problems for a long time, and I just seem to be going through this struggle. But here is the silver, silver lining for those who are followers of the Lord Jesus Christ and that are persecuted. Here's what he says in Matthew 5 and 10, and don't you ever forget this. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There's a promise for what we're going through. Your pain, your struggle, your persecutions is not purposeless, but it is purposeful. Acts says that through many tribulations, we enter into the kingdom of God. But I know the reality in the culture that we live in. For some of us, this sounds weird and it sounds unchristian to be in church and to talk about this idea of suffering. Like suffering? 
That's not what I understood Christianity to be. I thought it was that I would just say what I want and God would give it to me. If I just had enough faith and I just spoke that thing into existence, that God would give it to me. I have a question for you. How is that working out for you? Here's what he says. <laughs> Here's what he says in verse 13. I'm going to give you an indication why this is happening, why it feels like to you, like when somebody talks about persecution and suffering in church, why it feels odd to you. Here's what it says in verse 13. Evil people and imposters will become worse, deceiving and being deceived. And so while the righteous suffer persecution, it will seem at times like the evil people are prospering. It seemed like the evil people are the ones that are getting uh, promotions at work. It seemed like girls that ain't living right are the ones that's getting married and booed up. It seems like people who don't care about God and who don't give anything towards God, it seems like they're the ones that's getting rich and making all the money. And he's saying, don't be deceived by that. Don't be deceived by that. It looks like it's working out in their favor, but it's actually not. It looks like they're going to prosper, but, it, but in the end, they're going to face judgment for lying to my people. And here's why I say that. Here's a caveat. He's not just talking about people in the world who are evil people and imposters. He's actually talking in the context of false teachers. He's talking in a context of the church. And what he's saying is there will be some who will come in the church and will pose as godly preachers of the Bible, but will sell you a bill of goods. They'll appear that they're true teachers of the word and pastors and teachers who care about the people, but actually they have an ulterior motive. That they want to sell you a bill of goods. This is what he's saying. And, and, and he's saying that they are liars that are passing themselves off as godly teachers. I'm going to come back to that later. But essentially what he's saying is there will be a time where people will be deceived even in the church. There will come a time like now when it seems like the wrong way is the right way because the wrong way will appear to be more successful. And so here's what I want you to know. Quite frankly, we've been told that to be a Christian is to have a life filled with met expectations. We've been told that our life will, if we just believe strong enough, that, that all of our expectations will be met as Christians. So when things, here's the, here's the caveat though, so when things don't work the way we thought, it feels like God lied or God is being unfair. When in actuality, it's not your faith that's not working. It's not that you don't believe hard enough. It's not that God didn't own the job. It's not that you did something wrong. Could it be that the place of persecution, suffering, and disappointment for his sake is where God actually lives? Could that be the place where God actually grows you and conforms you to Christ? Could that be the place where God actually matures you, where God teaches you in a season of persecution and suffering? He teaches you to have faith and believe and trust in who he is. But when we don't suffer and we don't go through anything, we go on a vacation from God. You notice how your spiritual life is on fire when you hurting? <laughs> you ever know when you single, your prayer life is off the chain? But then when you get somebody... God ain't heard from you. You don't respond to his text. You just leave a text bubble on the I just sitting there for God. Jesus is like, are you going to say something back? Are you going to say something back? And you don't say anything. 
Do you notice when everything is going right at the job, you pray less about what's happening at the job, but let you get the wrong boss, the wrong supervisor, or you get in a position that you don't want to be in and they ain't paying you enough money and you don't like your coworkers. You praying, you fasting at the job. I ain't eating lunch today. Lord, in the name of Jesus, I declare right now, Father, that you will deliver me from this job. God, I trust in your promises, God. You, you get more spiritual by what you go through. So maybe you don't need to look at the persecution as a curse, but look at it as God's blessing in your life because he's getting your attention and drawing you near to him. He's teaching you something. And so I want to give you this. We are never more like Jesus than when we're suffering. We want to follow Christ. But here's what he said to his disciples. Any man wants to follow me, he got to pick up his cross and follow me. And so for us, we need to understand that there is something about following Jesus that this path will not be easy, but it will always be worth it. Paul says it's like this in Philippians 3. He says, know him. I want to know him and the power of his resurrection and that I may share. I may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Paul knew that the means to knowing God and drawing closer to him was to share in the sufferings of Christ. So no matter what people are doing, no matter how much culture and society is changing, no matter how much the wicked are prospering, no matter what looks like the more acceptable route to take in this age of compromise, Paul commanded for Timothy to do one more thing after remembering he is to continue. He's to continue by focusing on the scriptures. Here's what it says in verses 14 through 15. And this is where we pick up for Mother's Day. Verse 14, it says this, but it's for you, Continue in what you have learned and firmly believed. You know those who taught you. You know those who taught you. Who's he, what is he talking about? And you know that from infancy. You have known the sacred scriptures from infancy. Did he meet Paul when he was an infant? No, he didn't. Which are able, you know the sacred scriptures which are able to give you wisdom for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So here's the thing. Although Paul was Timothy's spiritual leader, his pastor, his spiritual father, he was not the first Christian that Timothy ever met. Although it is believed that Timothy was converted under Paul's ministry, the first people that actually introduced Timothy to the gospel were his mom and his grandmother. And so the first Christian that a child born to Christian parents should ever meet are his parents. The first Christian that your baby mom, future mom, should have ever met or should ever meet is you. The church is not the first line of defense. You are. The first person to disciple your child is not the pastor. It's you, mama. It's you, daddy. You're the first one to teach your child what they need to know about the Lord. And so this is what we see here. We see here a believing parent has a responsibility to be the first person to disciple their own children. And here's what he says. You know those who taught you and you know that from infancy you have known the scriptures. Well, how do you know it's his mom and his grandmother? We'll look back at 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5. Here's what it says. I recall your sincere faith that first lived in your who? Grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice. And now I'm convinced, this is Paul talking to Timothy, I'm convinced is also in you. It is believed that Timothy's mom and his grandmother were converted under Paul's ministry. How did that happen? 
Paul showed them the gospel in the Old Testament. The New Testament had been written at this point when they meet Paul. So Paul shows them Christ and how the Old Testament points to Jesus, points to Jesus and saved and believed the gospel. They were Jewish people, but now they believe the gospel because they met the apostle Paul, sat in his ministry, and he showed them Christ in the Old Testament. And so when Timothy is young, his mom and his grandmother are saved, and they start teaching him what they've learned about the gospel. They open up the Old Testament scriptures and open up Timothy's mind to the gospel in the Old Testament. They point him to Jesus in the Old Testament. And what I want you to see, ladies, is women played a role in teaching a young boy about the Bible. Ladies, it is good. I know some of you are prayer warriors and you pray and that's your thing. To be a prayer warrior though is not the sum total of all you are called to do. It is not enough just for you to pray. Your prayers should actually be shaped and informed by scripture. And so my first Mother's Day point today is that women are called to be theologians. Women are called to be theologians. Most people think that that is a man's job to know and to learn and to study and to teach the Bible. But women are also called to be theologians. Well, Pastor, that sounds a little uh, off from what you said, because I remember in one of your old messages, because I'm going to hold this against you, Pastor, because that's what we do. I remember you saying men are supposed to be the leaders in the home and in the church. Is that still true, Pastor? Absolutely. It is true. But we also live in a fallen world. And so that's not always the case. What do you mean, Pastor? I want to show you something in Acts chapter 16, verses 1 through 3, what I mean that is pertinent to today's text. Here's what it says. Paul went on to Derby and Lystra, where there was a disciple named Timothy, the son of a who? Believing Jewish woman. But his father was a Greek. His father's Greek. It's interesting that they mentioned the mom before the father. When Hebraic text, always you mention the man before you mention the woman. But here they put the woman before the man. That's interesting. I want you to take note of that. And then it says the brothers and sisters at Lystra in Iconium spoke highly of him. And Paul wanted Timothy to go with him. So he took him and he circumcised him. Wait a minute. Why would Paul be circumcising Timothy? Because it's the father's job to circumcise the son. Because we have a situation here where you have a saved mother and an unsaved father. Saved mother, unsaved father. She is a Jewish convert. The father was a Gentile. And some believe that maybe he was dead, but the text, the way the text reads, here's what we do know, that Timothy's father played little to no role in his life, his nurturing, or his upbringing. His father was either present and not present, or his father was not present at all. And I know many of us can relate to this. I know many of us grew up in homes where mom was the breadwinner, where mom taught the scriptures, where mom took you to church, where mom exposed you to the things of God. And dad had no role in it. That's not a perfect picture. That's not how God designs it. But we live in, a, in an imperfect world with fallen people. And so sometimes mom got to step up to the plate to be mama and daddy. And we see that here in this text. And so these ladies are teaching him. They're teaching him about Christ in the Old Testament. And so they're preparing Timothy and getting him prepared. So when he does hear the gospel, he will be able to respond to it. But my question for the text is, how could they teach him if they didn't know the scriptures themselves? Because in order to teach a young man and teach him how, how the scriptures point to Christ, they would have had to have been students themselves. You can't teach somebody something that you don't know or you're not familiar with yourself. And so this was important because we, th th this, is, this is important. Second Timothy is replete with passages about women and women in the church. And I want to point one out to you 
Well, I want to show you the importance of women being theologians and women knowing their Bible. Here's what it says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 6. For among them are those who worm their way into households and deceive gullible women overwhelmed by sins and led astray by a variety of passion. And so what he's essentially pointing out is the false teachers come in and you know who they take off and they put to the side and they, they, they deceive. They deceive gullible women who don't know the scriptures. And so when a woman is not rooted and grounded in Scripture and the only time she picks up her Bible is when she shows up at church, she makes herself available to be deceived by false teachers. And so any preacher that comes in and say, raise your hand, woman of God. <laughs> raise your hand, woman of God. Put your hands up. Raise them. That's it. That's it. That's it. That's it. Right there. 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 God is showing me right now that there's, there's things happening in the atmosphere around you. There's things, there's things. And, and, and because she ain't familiar with the scriptures, because she don't know how to respond to it, now she victimized by it. And he telling her and making promises in the name of God about stuff that ain't going to never happen in her life. And so now she in church moping around because he told her in the next 30 days there was an unexpected check in the mail. It's been 45 days. Check ain't came yet. You're going to get your bow asses. She's still single six years later because she listened to somebody and she was deceived by a false teacher. Amen. Just run around the church seven times and on the seventh, on the seventh time, all your bills are going to be paid. Where, 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 where in the text? Show me, prophet. Show me, prophet. I'm right here with you, prophet. Show it to me in the text. But when you don't know, you fall victim to it. And that's what goes to show the importance that, ladies, you can't just sit on the sideline and think digging in your Bible and, and studying and doing more than just seeing a scripture on the one scripture on the Bible app in the morning is enough to supplement your faith. But women, you should be setting aside time where you are digging in the text. You're using resources. You're looking up Greek words. You're looking at commentaries. You're trying to grow in your, your word. You're trying to grow in Christ so that when you have children, you can teach them something about God. I know a mama got eight million things to do. I know you got to raise them. I know you got to nurture them. I know you got to feed them. I know you got to clothe them. I know you got to correct them. I know you got to do all of that. But the most important thing you can ever give your child is a relationship with the Lord. And so I have this affinity and this love for scriptures. And most people would think it came because, oh, you're a pastor, of course. You know, you got to love the scriptures. You're a pastor. You probably picked that up in seminary. The truth of the matter is, my love for the scriptures came in the living room of an 80-year-old woman by the name of Margie Daniels, who taught me the scriptures at the age of three. That was my mom, my dad's mom. And so when they would leave for work, they would take me across the street. She lived across the street from us. They would take me to my grandmother. And the routine in the morning was I had to run it. Get in front of that TV that's sitting on the floor that's 10 feet tall. They didn't put TVs on screens. They, they were on the wall back then, guys, in case you didn't know that. They set them on the floor. And I had to sit in front of this TV on the floor and re repeat every day, by heart verbatim, John 14. Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God, also believe in me and my father's house. There are many men. This is three years old. And I'm doing whole chapters of the Bible. 
And no, my grandmother didn't know I'll be a pastor. No, my grandmother didn't know I'll preach the gospel. All my grandmother knew is I am a Christian and I have a responsibility to shape and form this boy's spiritual formation. So if I can't buy him a pair of Jordans, it's okay. If I can't buy him a Louis belt, it's okay. If I can't buy him the newest toys, it's okay. But I can give him a gift that will last him for eternity. As I got older, my mother would, we would sit on the bed at night in my preteen years, and we would read this green Bible. There was something like our message Bible that we have today called the book. And I would, I would love to read it because it put the Bible in layman terms. And we would sit there and read the Bible. And my mother created this love for scriptures for me as a young boy. She didn't let the church do it. And so here's the thing. I look back on it. I'm a preacher of all this stuff. I thought it didn't make any sense back then. But I, I, thank, I thank God for it because when I got grown, I knew where home was. And I don't get this new thing. This church is optional for the kids thing. When? What year did this start? Because it had to start in the 2000s because my mama didn't get that memo 89, 87, 86, 92, 95, 97. My mama didn't know nothing. We went to church every Sunday. We went to Sunday school every Sunday. We went to Bible study during the week. You had to participate in youth group. You had to say an Easter speech. You had to be on the program. You had to do everything. You had Easter egg hunts. You had to do everything in church. It, wasn't, it was not optional. Oh, I don't feel good. I'm sick. I got a headache. Good. Jesus is a healer. Get your behind up. Let's go to church this morning. I'm dead. Good. They resurrected Jesus from the dead, and they're going to resurrect you too. Get up. Rise and shine. We going to church. As for me and my house, we going to serve the Lord. Y'all new parents be killing me. Y'all new parents be killing me. Y'all let Instagram, Facebook, and a, a, a small iPad pastor your children. I don't know why he won't follow Jesus. You don't? Let me get off this for somebody don't, somebody walk out on me on Mother's Day. Here's the second part of it. He says, you know those who taught you. But why would he say that you know those who taught you? Obviously, he knows his grandparents. He says this in the B clause of verse 14. But really what this is speaking out of to the lives and the character of his mom and his grandmother. You know those who taught you. They lived out the faith in front of Timothy. What they taught him coupled with how they live had a saving effect on him. So when he actually heard the gospel, he got saved. He firmly believed their lives gave credibility to what they taught. They did not teach him about godliness with their words, but then taught a different doctrine with their lives. They didn't do something different. They taught him. It was not enough to teach him. It was not enough to drag him to the synagogue. Children don't watch what, don't watch what they say. They watch how we live. They watch how we live. The world doesn't just want to hear what us Christians have to say. They want to see how we live. So it is not enough to be students of the Scriptures. By God's grace, we have to be practitioners of the Scriptures. Don't just believe the Bible. Use it. Here's why. Verse 15. Which are able to give you wisdom for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And so the teaching of the scriptures were able to open Timothy's eyes to be saved. He saw in the scriptures his, his need for salvation. And we, we, 
you, you probably think of what the, this Old Testament idea with the gospel, no New Testament. Well, yeah, because the Old Testament points to Christ and his coming. It points to the need for a savior because the people kept trying to do right, but they kept doing wrong. They couldn't get it right. So God says, I send my son to show you how to do it, then to die for your sins and be resurrected and raised to life to save you, not just temporal, but save you eternally. And so that's what the Old Testament does. It points and teaches us about Jesus. It teaches us about the one that came to live, to suffer, to die, and to be resurrected. It teaches us about him. It leads us to the one that came to redeem us from sin and death and to accomplish forgiveness and life eternal through his death and resurrection. And so one of the most important scriptures in the Bible about the inerrancy and the infallibility of scripture that I want you to write down and never forget is put in the context of these precious women teaching this young Timothy, this young man, about the scriptures, and it's verse 16. Here's what it says. All scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. It says all scripture, everything in the Bible is inspired by God. The word inspired means God breathed that God breathed his breath into the scriptures. The same way he spoke the world into existence, he spoke and breathed life into the word of God. This is God breathed. This, the scriptures are not just some man-made ideology like people like to tell you these days, oh, the Bible is just written by men. It's just man's, it's just man's rules to, put, to try to control people. It was man's rules to justify slavery. No, scripture is God breathed. The writers of the Bible don't even take credit for it. They said we were carried along by the Holy Spirit. We didn't write this on our own. This wasn't something we made up. What man would put in all these kinds of rules that he don't have to obey? This has to be a God thing. This has to be a God thing that will make men say, be faithful to your wives. It, would be a man, it wouldn't be a man thing to say, don't commit adultery. It wouldn't be a man thing to say, don't do fornication. Those were not man things. Those are God things. What man would you know if you had a choice would put that in the Bible? Who? Which one? If God said today, I want you to write your own Bible, okay? <laughs> I know what I don't want in there. But this is God breathed. This is God breathed. And here's why it is so good for us that it's God breathed because it helps us to identify sin, but it gives us the ability to change. It conforms us to Christ. The scriptures are life. And the other beautiful thing about it being God breathed is not, it's just some academic book for us to study, but it is actually the living God speaking to us through his words. That's a beautiful thing that you can have a relationship with God by reading his words. That's beautiful. God didn't have to say nothing to us. He wasn't obligated to leave us something to look and see how he dealt with sinful humanity. But he chose to use words. And these words are life-giving. And I'm done. This is the beautiful thing. And I want to encourage you to get in your word, to continue in the word of God. And here's the last scripture I'll read. Luke 24, verses 44 through 47. And this is what Jesus says about the scriptures in Luke 24, verses 44 through 40, 47. He said, he told them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, 
that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. He's talking about the Old Testament. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and also said to them, this is what is written. The Messiah would suffer and rise from the dead the third day and repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning at Jerusalem. We need the Bible because it points us to Jesus and the finished work that he did for us on the cross and that he was raised to life for our justification, for our forgiveness, and for eternal life. And so the Bible is what teaches us and shows us what God has done for us through his son Jesus. The Bible is about Jesus and the more we read it, the closer we are to him. The more we are sure of our salvation, the more we read it, the more we love Jesus, the more we read it, the more we follow in love with Christ, the more we read it, the more we love our neighbors, the more we read it, the more we're made like him when we read the Bible. We need the Bible. We need it. We need it. When Jesus himself was faced with temptation, when he is doing battle with Satan, Jesus doesn't use brute force to fight Satan. He doesn't call on the host of angels to come get him out of trouble. There's one weapon he uses, and that's the word of God. And here's what Jesus says. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Today, if you're looking for salvation, it's in his word. If you're looking to be more like Jesus, then look to his word. If you want to know what Christ has done for you, then read his word. If you don't want to be deceived any longer and you want to know the truth, then read his word. Remember and continue in Christ. We hope you were blessed by the message today and would love to hear about how God is using this ministry in your life. You can connect with us online at outpouringorlando.com to share your story, request prayer, give financial support, or learn more about our ministry. We'd love to see you at one of our Sunday services if you're ever in the Orlando area. Thanks again for joining us today. Have a wonderful week.